Hey, welcome to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, I make the YouTube channel 12 Tone, and today Noah and I figured we'd like end our friendship by arguing about lyrics. So I think you and I, we both spend a lot of time thinking about music and breaking down songs, right? So I guess a good place to start is like from that sort of analytical perspective, how important are lyrics? I think there's no blanket answer, uh, but I think generally lyrics are very important. Obviously, I think it comes and goes. I think if we're talking about, you know, jazz standards or something like that, there's still a lot of value in the lyrics, but they're not always as important. But especially when we're talking about kind of rock, we're talking about kind of auteur, singer-songwriter stuff. Uh, we're t obviously, when we're talking about hip-hop, I mean, I, th I think even you would have a hard time arguing that lyrics aren't incredibly <laughs> important in hip-hop. Though I, I do believe you could do it. I, I have faith in you. <laughs> I am prepared. But yeah, I think generally, in my mind, um, as you can probably tell by my channel, lyrics are one of the most important parts if you're analyzing music that has lyrics. They're irrelevant if it's instrumental, but I think that goes without saying. So I would basically agree, but with a big asterisk, which is that I think the importance of lyrics is often overstated because of how obvious they are like there's to draw an analogy there's this saying that floats around in the design world and gets adopted by songwriters too and all sorts of artistic pursuits where when your user tells you something is wrong listen to them when they tell you how to fix it ignore them yeah and to draw sort of again deeper into this analogy i promise i will cycle back to lyrics eventually as you might imagine if you've ever seen any video i've ever made people tell me i talk too fast a lot but what i've noticed is that people there's no strong correlation between how fast I talk in a particular video and how often people tell me that about that video. What I have noticed is the strong correlation between how often people tell me that and how poorly I structured the information. So like there was a video I did on secondary dominance and in that one I like I built up the concept but I never actually defined what a secondary dominant was and a lot of people were like you're talking way too fast. Like I looked through the script I realized I'd screwed up and I was like I'm gonna remake it. I did the whole thing. I structured it better, talked about the same speed and no one complained. And so the issue was that they were confused. They weren't able to follow, but they were grabbing on to this very obvious thing that was like, oh, but, and I'm like, they're talking too fast. So clearly that's why I don't understand. If they slowed down, I would get it. Again, to finally bring this back to lyrics, there's a lot of times where you're listening to a song and you have this strong visceral reaction, like this deep emotional thing to a moment. And that moment has a really good lyric attached. And so you assume that's why. But it's often a lot more complicated than that. And I think that sort of focusing on lyrics too much can lose sight of those other musical elements. That's interesting because I think I think it depends. I think there are moments where it is like the lyrics that really make a moment memorable. I think where we're at here is because I, th I think that. I don't think what you're saying is that the lyrics are completely irrelevant to that moment. No. But but I think what's what's really compelling is and I guess the the kind of like go-to example of this, the straight up like I don't know most obvious example of I think great songs happen when lyrics and music work in concert together and the most famous example of that is obviously the the Hallelujah, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, yeah. the major lift. I think that that's kind of doing what a lot of the best composed lyrics do and it's kind of telling you that it's doing it um as it does it which is really cool and obviously cohen is a genius i think a lot of the time again though this really depends artist to artist there's a reason why 
lyrics aren't read on their own. There's a reason why there's a difference between lyrics and poetry, and I think some artists, ironically actually, Cohen is one of them, blur the boundaries between lyrics and poetry. Those are kind of on the far ends of the spectrum, and the vast majority of people, I think lyrics are specifically written to music, are created with music, and it's almost impossible to talk about some lyrics without talking about the music. It's interesting you mentioned Hallelujah, because I was actually going to use that as an example later on, but I'll just sort of bring that forward. I'm curious, in that, let's let's stick to the first verse, what do you think is the most, like, emotionally powerful line? Let, let me think. Let me, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up the lyrics so I, you don't need to hear me yeah. try to sing them all in my head. <laughs> I guess emotionally, the most powerful would actually probably be the, the Baffled King composing Hallelujah. Yeah, and I, I would agree, and that's... I think what most people would say, and the thing about that is that I think a lot of the impact of that line is a great example of how other non-lyrical elements actually can help lift this thing up. Because if you look at what they're doing under composing the word, the syllable po, that right there, he shifts to an E major chord. And it's like, it's not, that's the only chord. Okay, so let's little bit of theory. I promise I won't dive too deep into this, but I did do an analysis video on this. So I've thought a lot about this song. Are you breaking out the elephants? I'm bre- a little bit. Just just imagine some elephants in your head. <laughs> but uh, but basically, the song plays in the space between C major and A minor as key centers. And the thing about those two is they have what's called a relative relationship, which means they contain all the same notes. It's just which one you count as the root. And for the most part, they're pretty clearly establishing C major, right? Like when Noah was talking about like the fourth, the fifth, that's F major, G major, that's four and five in C, which then set up resolutions to back to C, uh, although that, that one doesn't. But that's a whole other thing. But again, you sort of you have this space which playing around. It's like sort of C major, but with hints of A minor, and you're trying to figure out. But then under composing, we get this E major, which doesn't exist in C major. It's not a chord there, but it is a chord in A minor, and it's the five chord in A minor, and it points you to that root, that one chord in A minor. I keep saying A minor, A minor. So you have this whole like this whole sudden like shock of like, oh wait, no, we're there, and the the verse has sort of been drifting from C major at the start into A minor, and this is this mo- very clear strong departure that we haven't gotten, and it's a really powerful musical moment even without that, and it's also melodically. Uh, that it goes up to an E, which I'm not going to try and sing because I'll be in the wrong key, but it goes up to an E, which is the highest point in the melody. So you have this like sort of triumphant rise that hits at the top there and then falls back down. And there's this really clear musical narrative that you get across every time that line occurs in the song. Every I think in most of the verses, that's the most powerful line because of this musical moment that has really nothing to do with the lyrics, even though I will say, great lyric. A Baffle King composing Hallelujah is fantastic. I don't want to take anything away from that. And so that's sort of, I think, what I want to illustrate is that even in something like, again, you mentioned like Cohen is very much considered like a poet set to music. And I think justifiably, right? I mean, he had several books of poetry published before he released his first (laughs) album. So that's, he's really is the like the gold standard for poet turned musician. Yeah. And that, that's very much, I think, how a lot of people think of him. And they think of very simple music under very good lyrics. But even then, it's not. Even then, there are these musical moments that make the lyrics work. The thing is, I think they deserve more credit. I'm not saying the lyrics don't deserve credit, too. I'm not like... I think I agree with you on that, especially... I feel I feel like it depends, though, because I feel like a lot of these poet musicians, people kind of assume the music is secondary. And someone who I love 
probably my favorite musician is Bob Dylan. I say this having recently done a video <laughs> that was just a pure lyrical analysis of one of his songs, but I think a lot of Dylan's stuff, especially his electric period, I think because the lyrics are this kind of tour de force of poetics, I agree that I think people underestimate how much work the music does and a, a big thing specifically with Dylan and I, I think this with Cohen too is people say oh they can't sing but their their music's really pretty and I'm like no they are they are singing in a very specific way that very much goes into the vibes of the music if you listen to a Dylan song like I, I don't know like I want you he sings with this very warm tone or it's all over now baby blue even mr tambourine man his tone yes it's nasal and weird but it is very much part of the delivery of the lyrics i think a big thing that gets swept away when people look at like music and lyrics separately they almost kind of group singing in with lyrics when really singing is part of the music how it's sung right yeah i mean imagine like tangled up in blue sung by frank sinatra right it's yeah it's a very different i don't maybe it would work he could probably make it work to speak to your point actually i think yeah. that that's the thing where frank sinatra could make tangled up in blue work with a different arrangement frank sinatra yeah. could not make tangled up in work in blue tangled up in work that's me <laughs> <laughs> frank frank sinatra could not make tangled up in blue work with the Bob Dylan musical arrangement behind it. Yeah. I think this this is interesting where th there's definitely, like, uh, once again, we kind of agree on a lot of this, but I think where it gets really <laughs> interesting is when it gets down to kind of what you and I do, when it gets down to the yeah. analysis of it. I think that's where that's where it gets really interesting, because I think that there's people of both schools of thought where there's people who will be like, you can do a video entirely analyzing lyrics without even looking at the music. And I've done that a couple times. Yeah. I, I didn't really touch on the music of Hotel California when I looked at those lyrics. I didn't really touch on the lyrics when I touched yeah. on that song. <laughs> yeah, so, so check both those videos out and they'll work very well in context with each other. Together you will understand Hotel California. <laughs> it's something where, from my perspective, first of all, just as someone who doesn't have a lot of theory background... What I think is interesting is a lot of the ways that I describe lyrics and emotion, I describe it from a very intuitive sense where to go back to our hallelujah example, yeah. I can't tell you about those ambiguous chord centers. I can now because Corey's <laughs> great, um, <laughs> but, but what I can tell you is that you will intuitively feel this kind of sad triumph there which is a very unique feeling and and your whole your whole job is figuring out what technically is going on that gives you that sad triumph yeah a lot of times in music theory we'll teach devices as if as if they mean one thing like the the classic example is like major is happy minor is sad and anyone who's ever written a song will look at that and be like well sort of but like you have these associations that we learn, but then in a specific context, those devices can have different effects. Like, for instance, the thing I was talking about earlier, the relative major minor thing, 
that's not necessarily always going to have the impact that it has in Hallelujah. It could be if it's sort of leaning more towards minor and then building into major, it can give you this more triumphant feel. Or if it's maybe like if the lyrics are telling a different story, you could have a different emotional reaction to it. I think the music gives you sort of an emotional frame through which to interpret the lyrics, but the lyrics also give you a narrative frame through which to interpret the music. We sort of talk about them sometimes as if one sits on top of the other, right? Like there's lyrics and then yeah. there's music and you can sort of analyze, but they both impact each other. Like you're talking about, I think like your analysis of Hallelujah's lyrics would sound would be different if the music was different and my analysis of its music would be different if the lyrics were different I think it's harder to separate music from lyrics than people think because music is also rhythm and rhythm is yeah. built very much into lyrics like obviously yes you can kind of change your cadences and stuff like that but I mean you say I don't know wham bam thank you ma'am like in Suffragette <laughs> City there is that is that is that's basically a drum fill in vocal form. Yeah, for sure. And this I think might be a good time because you mentioned hip hop at the beginning. I want to bring that back up because I think it's really interesting. And I also want to draw a distinction here between sort of the semantic meaning of the lyrics and the actual like oral form of the lyrics, the way they sound. They sort of serve two roles and they get conflated a lot. And I think in hip hop, they serve a much more structural role, again, because of those oral properties. Like it has a lot to do with the rhyme structure. It has a lot to do with the rhythm in a way that it, you don't necessarily see as much in other genres. Hip hop lyrics often have a lot of meaning. I'm not, the, what I'm about to say is not meant to imply otherwise. My argument is that that meaning is still can still sort of sit on top of it in the same way that you might get from like a Cohen song or a Dylan song. Like it's not necessarily that the meaning of the lyrics is any more important or less important. It's just that the structure of the lyrics, the sort of actual sonic properties, the way they sound means is built into the music in a way that you don't necessarily see in other genres. I think when we talk about music and lyrics coming together in concert, I think it is it is most clear in hip hop. Like, I mean, are we wait, are we allowed to swear on this? I'll just say fudge instead of yeah. instead of the bleep word. I almost <laughs> went to podcast without mentioning Ben Shapiro, but even if I bolt pull a Ben Shapiro and read out the lyrics of some of these things, like some <laughs> well, something that comes to mind for me, a great hip hop song that a lot of people probably know is something like King Kunta by Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. The opening lines of that I got a bone to pick. I don't want you monkey mouth mother fudgers sitting on my throne again. I'm, this is me going full Shapiro whap here. <laughs> but, <laughs> the P but you, word is female genitalia. Yeah, 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 exactly. You can't even read those lyrics without adding a kind of rhythmic phrase to it. And that is yeah. rhythm, rhythm is music. We're not we're not litigating that one. <laughs> yeah, no. A point that I actually saw on Twitter today by... Um, Raised by Ethan Hines, citing Tony Blackman. I just want to cite my sources here. So the word mother, we can just bleep it, has an internal rhyme to it, right? Oh, yeah. Both words have the same vowels and they both end in that er sound. Yeah. You get this internal rhyme that like is really, really useful. And there's other things that you can sort of rhyme it to with other, for instance, the word I just said. But there's, there's other things that you can sort of toss in there and rhyme with it and build a further internal rhyme. But you have this really powerful phrase that you can just throw in and has this. And again, you can also use it like lazily. I'm not going to say that no one ever does, but like it has it has this impact and this structure, not just because of the semantic meaning of it being this profane word, it, uh, putting that in quotes, but um, because of the, the vowels and because of the way it sounds. In that way, it almost feels like and we're going to shout out to Adam Neely here. It almost it, it, it almost functions like a like lyrical version of the lick. 
right? Yeah. Where it's this little this little connecting piece that you can throw in that that creates this flourish in your rhythm um and and has the added impact of adding emphasis on on your lyrics on whatever it is that your mother effing <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it, it has a punch semantically and also yeah fits in with you can build on it and build these again because that's i think the the main point i want to get at is that these lyrical structures can be musical and that's i did a whole video on that um based on some work by dr kyle adams about sort of the ways in which hip-hop artists use rhyme to build rhythm basically i th i think this is something that i've never really kind of explicitly thought but implicitly this has been why in my videos a couple times i haven't done uh i, I mean i'm i'm because copyright is well copyright yep. is the same because it's being mm. litigated worse and worse i've started to do less and less videos using music samples but very intuitively from the start of polyphonic even if i'm doing something that's a pure lyrical analysis with the exception of the one video that i did specifically specifically looking at it as kind of a poem because of the difficulties of copyright i just intuitively always say i want to have the sound in here and i think this is a lot of the reasons why i think there's other there's and this is not to throw anyone out under the bus or anything like people can make content the way that they, they want to make content yeah. But I see I, I see other creators sometimes that don't use music samples, and I I totally get why because it's a whole yeah. headache. But at the same time, I feel like when you when you go through these lyrical analyses, especially of I don't know if you're using something like again, this is not throwing anyone under the bus or anything, but I think this is one that I watched once where some it was just like kind of a straightforward lyrical analysis of the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Yeah. And I'm like, you're missing so much if you're just reading those lyrics. You're missing so much from the song. I don't even necessarily need to point out the kind of like March snare and the drama of it all and how it kind of conjures Broadway musicals and things like that. I think a lot of that, I think I can talk about that and I think that that's yeah. really great and fun, but a lot of that you can just intuit by listening. And I think you miss that when you talk about lyrics without actually listening to the song, when you just look at the lyrics. I mean, the, the example that comes to mind for me is like, uh, it's just like, if I say, here am I sitting in a tin can far above the world? Yes. That's not the same as listening to Space Oddity. Yeah. That's, that's a completely different experience because so much of that is sort of the way he draws it out and the spacey sounds behind it. And so much of it is that ambiance. And again, like you're saying, you don't necessarily have to explicitly spell it out. I think that's sort of the point that I'm trying to make. And so I'm, you know, I'm I'm pretty mad that you made it for me. But uh, <laughs> the, so the central thesis that I have is that, like, you know, a lot of this is there intuitively that you can really hear this stuff because that's, I, I think, the point of music theory, right? It's to take stuff that you can hear and explain why. It's not to sort of like come in here and be like, well, you know, if you like were able to notice that this was a tritone substitution, that would be cool because I mean, sometimes I'll do that, but like, yeah, you know, I don't know why I always pick tritone substitutions for my examples, but they, they just sound fancy, you know? I think that's an interesting thing because I think a lot of the time, I think lyrical analysis can function like that. Um, especially, especially when you look at someone, I don't even have an example for this, but I think, I, I think a lot of the time I think lyrics can function like that, 
But I think what's really interesting is what I tend to do is more actually contextualizing and explaining lyrics and explaining what's going on. Whereas I feel like theory analysis is more like explaining why it's why it feels like it does. The lyrics, a lot of the time lyrics, people will be like, oh, I don't actually understand what the song says. I just like the words. Like, I just like the yeah. sound of them and I just like the melody. So I think that that's, a, that's kind of a fundamental difference in what we do, where a lot of the time what I'm, what I'm trying to do is bring meaning to these lyrics. The lyrical equivalent of theory analysis is, well, theory. It's literary theory. It's yeah. being like, <laughs> okay, well, here... Bob Dylan used a metaphor, and this is an allusion to classical mythology. And Dylan is actually someone who that can help a lot with. Like, traditional literary yeah. theory is very, very useful for deciphering Dylan because he is very poetic and drew a lot from T.S. Eliot and Arthur Rimbaud and people like that. But I think that's not generally what what people try to do with with lyric analysis. We don't tend to look and be like, this is how the lyrics are working. We look and say, this is what the lyrics are saying. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's a good point. I think, you know, music theory is, again, very much designed to take things that you're already experiencing and explain why you're experiencing them. One thing that I will try to do in a lot of my videos is to try and find things that you may not have noticed and that may provide deeper insight. I think one of my favorites is in my analysis of Chop Suey by System of a Down, where they have this bass part that like doesn't fit with the, what the rest of the chords are doing, and they keep playing it in all these different sections where it doesn't really belong with the guitar. And then at the end, the guitar joins up with it and they play the thing together. For other reasons involving what they're playing, it winds up, to me, symbolizing death. So having this thing going through it and having this sort of underlying thing that means death, but that you don't know means death yet is I think very poetic and something that I think you really have to dig into the song first to find. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone listening to it has this experience. of like, well, why am I thinking of death right now? Like until you sort of really realize what that bass is doing. And again, and I should be clear, I'm not saying that they did that on purpose. I don't know why they have that bass part there. That's how I interpret it. I think when you, when you say, I'm not sure why they did that on purpose, that's how I interpret it. That is like the catchphrase of lyrical analysis. And I <laughs> yeah. think this is something we, we have in common on both fronts is a lot of people read intent into analysis. Like if I say you can read these lyrics as being about civil rights, people will will take it to mean that song is explicitly about civil rights. And some are. I mean, there are songs about civil rights. Yes. <laughs> Blowing in the wind or something like that. Probably about yeah. civil rights, but not explicitly about civil rights. Yeah. That's interesting to hear because I think I tend to think of lyrical analysis, not necessarily your lyrical analysis, but like when I tend to see it, it tends to feel more prescriptive to me. It tends to feel more like, this is what they were trying to say. And you'll see that a lot with like things like, oh, this is, is a reference to Greek mythology. And it's like, that's not yeah. necessarily something that you're going to frame as like, whoops, it's a Medusa. How did that happen? <laughs> uh, you know, that's going to be something that like they put this in there explicitly. And that's not necessarily, again, that's not to say that that's what you do most of the time or wrong when you do it or wrong all the time. It's just, that is a thing that I see more in there. And it's a thing that I see a lot in theory analysis too, honestly. And it really bugs me because like 
music theory has a long and sordid history of being used to define the right music as a tool of oppression. Yep. But that's a whole thing that we don't really need to get into right now. We should get into it someday, though. I mean, I think we've I think we've gotten into it a bit already. Uh, yeah, we we've touched on it in basically every episode so far. I think. But we'll we'll circle around to that as a full topic at some point. I think an example, an easy example that I love for this is so I did I did a video a while ago about songs that reference Tolkien. Yeah. And one of the songs I mentioned was The Wizard by Black Sabbath, which is basically a song that's kind of about Gandalf. And I got a lot of people in the comments that said, well, that's not about Gandalf. That's about their drug dealer. And the answer is, well, yes. It's about both. Like, it can be about Gandalf as a metaphor for their drug dealer. It can be about Gandalf and about their drug dealer. Another one that I did, there was a song on my 21 Pilots video when I did a a video on Trench. There was, there's a song, My Blood, which is in the context of the concept album. It's this, uh, this kind of the main character finding family with this underground group of resistance fighters. But I got a lot of comments from people who were like, well, no, the songwriter has said that's about his brother. And I think especially in things that have narratives, like it's like, yes, Comfortably Numb is about the character of Pink getting an injection and like overdosing. Right. Like, like, yeah, it is about that. But Comfortably Numb is also just more broadly about kind of that emotion and what that yeah. feeling is and the fact it's that about Roger Waters' own experience yeah, too. yes yes exactly and I think that's something where I think a lot of the time this is true in my mind of both theory and lyric analysis is yeah people take one interpretation as definitive when the entire point of art is that there is no definitive interpretation yeah and there's often multiple intended interpretations too. It's not like artists aren't aware of the possibility of like allegory and using something to literally be one thing, but like metaphorically be something else. That's a thing that gets done in like in poetry, in literature, in lyrics all the time, in music too. Like you can do that with musical objects. I'm trying to think of examples. I'm blanking on them, but it's definitely a thing you can do. Once again, we're we're just coming back to postmodernism like we always do. Oh yeah. Rename the podcast Post Notes. Uh a <laughs> <laughs> But that just makes me think of like sticky notes because aren't those also called post-it notes? Yeah, yeah. In retrospect, it's a bad idea. <laughs> M- merch idea. Ghost note branded sticky notes. Yeah, that are called <laughs> yeah, ghost-it notes. <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious in general, because you're clearly like more involved in the academic spheres than I am. Is there in music theory, in, in the academic spheres, is there any kind of like dialogue between people who use critical literary theory to analyze lyrics and people that use music theory to analyze music like is there any dialogue or are they at odds with each other what's the kind of temperature like in academia i should clarify that i i am also on the outside of that world uh looking in i can see through them so on etc i think a lot of the music theorists i know that people doing it at like PhD and like postdoc levels and stuff like that and people who are like professors. I don't think that there's as much of a sense that these two things are separate. I think that there's an understanding that like 
lyrics are a part of the musical experience and that therefore should be interpreted. And, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about, especially like one thing with music theory is this is changing, but it's still very obsessed with the common practice era. And a lot of music out of the common practice era is instrumental. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we're talking about like a Bach chorale or like, like a Beethoven symphony, not like um, the ninth, which has lyrics. Do other the other ones have lyrics? I think they might. I don't remember. I don't listen to Beethoven. I'm I'm a rock guy. You're a bad music theorist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that's why. But like, if you look look at a lot of like like a like a Chopin like piano piece or whatever, they're not going to have lyrics, and so we don't analyze the lyrics. And so a lot of music theory is still this very non lyrical because it's looking at music that doesn't have lyrics. But I think for the most part, the music theorists who that I tend to interact with are people who tend to be more interested in things like rock, pop, jazz, more modern styles of music. And in those fields, there's a good understanding that the lyrics are part of the thing. And so we'll not just be talking with people who do literary analysis, we'll be doing it. I mean, when you get into like all the arts and humanities, all of the lines get super blurry, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's really hard to define like, like, what is music theory? What is musicology? Right. That, that, that's yeah, that's a whole thing that like we're sort of we all look at that as like, I, I don't I don't know. You, you know it when you see it. This thing's music theory. This is and we won't necessarily agree. Also, we don't agree with Europe because the U.S. does things differently. That's another story. It's neat because with the rock stuff, I mean, a lot of the concept of this lyricism in rock and roll and even in, in jazz before it and stuff like this, all of this kind of comes from folk musics that's where that's where the idea of lyricism in general comes from they're they're folk songs that you sing at the tavern or sing at the docks or unfortunately sing on the plantation a a lot of these a lot of these kind of communal folk songs are what birthed the idea of of this kind of not generally lyricism with music but i think how we understand lyricism with music how we understand like verse, chorus, verse structures, how we understand even just the general mode of lyrical writing. A lot of it comes from folk traditions. And then in the 60s, you get them kind of coming face to face with poetry through people like Cohen and Dylan and the Greenwich, the whole Greenwich Village scene, Joni Mitchell, um, uh, all of these people. And then that kind of twirls into this rock thing. So in its very nature, I think... Uh, and and you actually you actually have talked about this a lot recently. Maybe we're pivoting onto a different topic at this point. But a lot of the a lot of the kind of schools of thought and modes of musical theory analysis just fail when you try to look at rock music because it's coming from a completely different framework. Yeah, the thing I think with with rock is that like if you try and analyze it from again from really those sorts of classical ideals. Those, those ways that we would analyze a common practice music, it doesn't work, right? Like, I'm a little bit more wishy-washy on that than some theorists are. I think that there are ideas you can still borrow and use meaningfully. But again, I think a lot of that is because I learned those rules in the context of rock, because I went to a fairly rock-oriented school, whereas people who learned the much more classical version of these rules will look at rock and be like, none of this makes sense. Like, you can't do that. And like, like I'll talk about like plagal cadences, and I'll just use that to mean four going to one in any situation. And like people who learned what an actual plagal cadence is will look at that and be like, no, that's that's different. It's a different thing. And you can't apply it here. And I was like, whatever, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I think the idea can still transfer. But I think to understand rock, you really have to understand the black musical tradition in America. You have to understand the blues. You have to understand jazz. Those are much more the 
forebears of rock than anything that like Tchaikovsky ever wrote. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I decided to pick on Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky's probably fine. Or maybe he's not. I don't know. The other thing I do, because I, I was thinking like you mentioned jazz at the beginning, and I think it's a really interesting place to look. And I think it has a significant impact on the way we think about lyrics because in jazz, like some stuff was like show tunes that they yeah. sort of borrowed and did their own thing too. But like for the most part, when jazz standards were written by jazz people, they largely weren't written with lyrics most of the time. They were usually written by like instrumentalists. And then at some yeah. point, like, you know, So What, for instance, is a great example. Like Miles Davis wrote So What as an instrumental so that like he and his band yeah. could play around with it. And then Eddie Jefferson comes along and he's a singer and he's like, well, I don't want to just ba 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 da ba ba da. He, he wants to put words to it. And so he writes, I think, this really funny set of lyrics about Miles Davis. I recommend looking it up if you haven't heard it, but that's sort of become, to my understanding, the standard set of lyrics for So What if a vocalist wants to perform it. But it was clearly never intended as part of the music. The music wasn't written to support those lyrics. They were just tossed on top. And so you have this separation because even the vocalist is going to like take a solo. They're going to scat. They're going to do whatever. They're going to improvise. With with exceptions, I want to be very clear, there are exceptions. But like a lot of the time in jazz, the lyrics really do feel like an afterthought. And I think that that affects the way that we talk about and we think about lyrics as sort of separate from music now. What's neat is that sometimes sometimes you can take these songs, something that I I love and again also like is Frank Sinatra jazz? Maybe maybe not. That's that's a whole conversation. That's a that's a conversation for another time, but yeah, is is really a conversation. I'm very liberal. Go, go listen to our genre episode and come back. My my general belief is that everything is jazz. Um yeah. so <laughs> My my official rule is anything with a minor seventh in the melody is jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can look at something like in the wee small hours, which I've done a video on. I'll probably mention a lot of things that I've done videos on because I've become experts yeah. on these things. Yeah, no, I, I do the same thing. That's just <laughs> and in in the wee small hours is really cool because it's Sinatra. He didn't write any of these songs. Um, Sinatra didn't write any of his songs, but he's kind of curating and picking. All of these standards that are around a similar emotion lyrically and musically, and though, though they're though again like the 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 musical emotion, you look at something like uh, Mood Indigo, the emotion changes drastically depending on who's singing it. Or something like My Funny Valentine is a great one where it's like if My Funny Valentine is possibly my favorite jazz standard. I love My Funny Valentine. But it's sung in very different ways. It can be sung as this kind of like fun tongue in cheek song. But then you listen to like Chet Baker singing My Funny Valentine, Nina Simone doing My Funny Valentine. It can be this dark, like angst filled song. And I think that that's I think that's something that's really cool about jazz. And it's something that you can you kind of get with covers generally. But jazz standards are basically yeah, covers. They are, are built to be covers. Yeah, exactly. And and that's something that's really cool where you can see the impact that the musical arrangement has on how the lyrics hit you. And something like In the Wee Small Hours is this thing where you take all of these songs that were basically just written I mean, I I think the songwriters who wrote them clearly like put their heart into them and stuff, some of them at least. Yeah. But a lot of these are also just kind of 
Tin Pan Alley, like, dump out a hundred songs in a year and, you know, even more than that. When Tin, tin Pan, from a songwriter <laughs> in Tin Pan Alley, like, when they yeah. were building the Great American Songbook, it's just, like, people hold up in offices, like, writing yeah. as many kind of schmaltzy love ballads as you can get. But then... Literal music factory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then you have someone like Sinatra come together and put his experience into it and that's that's a whole other thing with lyrics to to talk about and maybe I'll jump into that after this thought is finished but to put his experience into it and bring these these kind of disparate unrelated songs together and basically create a concept album it's it's something you see in country a lot too Willie Nelson did it with Redheaded Stranger where he wrote some but he also took these standards and we're like well I'm going to fit these into this narrative the whole thing with Redheaded Stranger was originally it was Redheaded Stranger was this one song and it t- tells the story of this character and Willie Nelson's like, well, what's the whole story of this character? I'm going to expand on that. Whenever whenever I think about covers, I think all along the Watchtower. Right? Yes. I think that's that's hard to resist. And I, not to spend too much time this episode talking about Bob Dylan, but I think it's sort of no such thing as too much time talking about Bob Dylan. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> but I think that like the testament to the power of a musical arrangement to transform lyrics is so evident in that because, you know, Bob Dylan wrote all along the Watchtower. He did his version. Jimi Hendrix came along. He was like, nah, let, let me show you how this song is done. And then Dylan was like, yep, you're right. You got it. <laughs> you figured out the correct way. And this is like, it makes it so clear that like the lyrics, the lyrics to that song were great. But like the music changed the experience of listening to it because Jimi Hendrix just had such an interesting idea for how to frame the story that that music was telling, that those lyrics were telling. That's something where, I mean, in my mind, and and Hendrix was always really good at this, something that Hendrix was incredible at was kind of creating these soundscape. He like painted with his guitar, yeah. but it, it's in, in Dylan's all along the watchtower, you listen to it. And it's kind of this like vague biblical apocalypse thing. And then Hendrix plays it and you're like, Oh no, this is about the Vietnam war. And that's a yeah. really cool thing where nothing about the lyrics specifically says is about the Vietnam war. Nothing about the lyrics even specifically say it's about war in general. But when you pair it with Hendrix, when you pair it with that music, suddenly it goes from this cool, moody, apocalyptic song to an anti-war protest song that's just on the power of the musical arrangement. And sorry, I have to bring this up because if we're talking about Hendrix and anti-war protest, the Star Star Spangled Banner. Yep. Yeah. Like... (laughs) Like, there aren't even lyrics in his performance. Like, you know the lyrics. I think the lyrics that you know inform your experience of his performance. Yes. In a way that's really interesting because he's not singing them. He's just playing them on his guitar. But because you know what the Star Spangled Banner sounds like, you know what it represents, and you know what words go with each thing he plays, you get that strong impact that you just, you wouldn't get if you didn't have that context. A lot of the time, like, acapella performances like someone's vocal take will kind of surface or something like that one of my favorites is marvin Gaye's acapella vocals on um heard it through the grapevine astounding check them out if you haven't listened to them before i don't think i have yet i'll look them up 
it's really neat because I think similar to how you said the lyrics are implied in Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower, I think a lot of a lot of what happens, especially in like live performances when someone does something without uh, a cappella or does something stripped down and acoustic for a verse before going back in or plays with this stuff, a lot of the time what that is, is that's playing off of your knowledge and your familiarity with the music that should be there and kind of creating this gap or creating this new emotion by your brain filling in the gaps because you know the music. I hadn't really thought about that, but that's a really good point. The acapella can imply, because, you know, I, we, we talk in like music theory about like melodies implying harmony and whatnot. But I think because you're familiar with it, you can imply further stuff. And I think it might be interesting. I don't know. I'm trying to think of examples where you might use that to imply something other or in a way that's surprising. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. So playing in that space because you have that strong implication and then you maybe come back with the wrong chord in a way that like, you know what chord is supposed to be. I don't know. I'm I'm making stuff up right now. I'm. I think this is something you see musicians do a lot in live performances. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't have any specific recordings that I can point to, but I know a lot of the time when you go to a concert, especially when it's like stadium tours of people, where like they know they're playing to fans who know the songs. Yeah. Jack White is someone actually actually who does this a ton where Jack White will kind of play around with his arrangement or swap out his lyrics a little bit or do these different things building on an assumption that that the that the audience knows the studio version and from there it can create this new and wholly unique that's one of the fun things about live music obviously, yeah. and everyone talks about it always. Um, but it, it <laughs> creates this new and wholly unique experience. I think one that Jack White does it a lot on, obviously, is Seven Nation Army. You can look up Jack White playing Seven Nation Army, and he will play it a thousand different ways. But every time he plays it, in the back of your head, the original is playing because everyone knows that song, because that is a yeah. universal kind of chant. and And that's really... That's really neat, and that's something that you can do. It's something you can do lyrically and musically because of the knowledge of what's going on. And I, I guess, I guess another a simple example of this is just any time at a particularly interesting moment in the chorus or something like that. Any time the singer steps away from the mic and lets the fans fill in the chorus, sing the chorus, or like points yeah. the mic at the fans. That's that's doing this kind of stuff. That's taking your knowledge of the lyrics, your knowledge of the music, your knowledge of how they intertwine, then suddenly you have, like, the band will cut out and the fans will sing the chorus over. I'm curious, now that you mentioned that, I wonder if, or, or I think an important distinction to be made here is that the singer can do that. No one else in the band really can most of the time. That's that, that's not necessarily true. I think, you know, you could cut out on, like, Seven Nation Army, the, the bass, and have the audience sing it. But, like, if you think of, like, the drummer just like stopping and pointing to the audience and having them beatbox the drum beat. Like that's that's not a thing you know well enough. Like that's not a thing you could expect that's an very audience true. to do. This is sort of less about lyrics and more about melodies, I think. But because again, you, you could do it with like the you could get an audience to sing that. And and a lot of the time you do get audiences doing the oh, 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 oh. Like that's pretty common. Yeah, you, you can get that going again. And we're drifting further and further from lyrics, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, 
John Paul Jones stops playing the baseline in the middle of good times, bad times, people are not yeah. about to are not about to start going boom, 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 boom. like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you, you just have this this sort of separate, and I think this sort of comes down to again, sort of like which instruments are featured. And this goes back again to the thing we were talking about last time about how like you have these parts of the band that are viewed as sort of the main central members, even if they're not necessarily the most important thing happening because they feel like the most important, like lead guitar and vocals usually. Again, vocals are sort of where lyrics sit, which is part of where that is. And it's also because melodies are just easier to like internalize and sing. Uh, But you have this sort of separation and it's, I think, similar to the separation we were talking about earlier between lyrics and sort of quote unquote music, where there is a real distinction to be drawn there, but there's also not. You know, I think another example using using the lead guitar that's really interesting. Yeah. This is the guitar solo in Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, right. The guitar solo in Smells Like Teen Spirit is just playing the vocal melody. And and I don't know about you, but I sing along to that guitar solo in my head, especially when it gets to the pre-chorus in the solo, like the hello, hello, how low. Like I sing along with that in my head when I listen to the guitar solo. That's because the lyrics and the melody there are one in the same. Fun, completely unrelated side note. Uh, I learned the hard way that the melody in that song from the pre-chorus into the chorus jumps a minor ninth. <laughs> and it, it's so weird. Like there, there's reasons why it works. It, the, the, I'm not going to get into it. It's so unrelated to what we're supposed to be talking about. But like I, de- like I was jamming with friends at one point and I was singing along and I just like was singing the pre-chorus. I was going note to note and I just like went up to the chorus and just completely whiffed. And I was just like, why did that happen? I know the melody. And I went and looked it up and it was like, oh, that's not. That's really bizarre. That's weird. Motifs, y'all. One last thought that I'm I'm interested, actually, that reminds me that I'm interested specifically your thoughts on kind of lyrics and music as someone who is a vocalist i imagine that's something that really informs your your opinion with this yeah i mean to be fair i haven't really done much as a vocalist in about five years now yeah like i I taught some vocal lessons to kids for a little bit but i i haven't done like performing anything since college but like it, it definitely i think the way that I was trained to approach music is to listen to the vocals first. And I think that's sort of the way a lot of people naturally learn to listen to music. But then a lot of what I am looking at, again, I think that it's really important to think of lyrics as providing a narrative framework because the experience of listening to a certain musical sound depends on what you're, what, how you're thinking about it. And so it's it's not like you can just shut it off, but like, I don't know. As a vocalist, I am very much drawn to melodies. I don't know that I'm drawn more than most to lyrics. That's interesting. I mean, more than anything, I think approaching things as a vocalist means there's things that I'm not paying attention to that other theorists might. Guitar tone is a big one of those. Like, I I understand the importance of guitar tone. I just don't care that much about it. I love guitar tone. This is this yeah. is something we can we can we can go to town on. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like when I think of like like. Looking back at some of my older videos for a long time to avoid copyright stuff, I was doing MIDI recreations. I'd like stop doing that eventually. But like I would always get people being like, the guitar sounds terrible. I'm like, it sounds fine. It's not like I I get that it doesn't sound like they're recording, but I don't care. Yeah, it doesn't affect any of the points I'm trying to make. But it's just like. I mean, when when I was performing, I, I I would think about the lyrics, but I it wasn't my main focus most of the time. Part of that is just like I have a really good memory, which is 
a weird thing to brag about, but it's true. Uh, and so like compared to a lot of my classmates, I was really good at learning song lyrics fast. And so like we would have these like performance classes and I would like people would get up and they'd have lyrics with them. And you were sometimes allowed to do that, sometimes not. But people usually would if they were. And I never did. But like the melody, I think partly because when I got to college, I like I started singing fairly late in my pre-college years, I think I like really decided to like get into singing around 15 or 16, whereas a lot of the people I was there with had been singing since they were like single digits. And so like they had more of an ins instinct for melody. And so I but I was had to pay more attention to that. And so I think that may have influenced the way that I approach sort of music and music theory is thinking more about the notes, because when I was performing, that's what I had to think about. That's the thing that I couldn't just like put on autopilot, what like I could with lyrics, because lyrics were easy. That's really cool to hear something that in lyrics that people way too often overlook in my mind is the shape of the lyrics. Alt-J, do you know Alt-J? I know of Alt-J. I don't know much of their music. They're a band that's really good for this, for using words, and, and there is a lyrical meaning, but a lot of the time, they're kind of using words for the acoustic sound of the word, not necessarily for a meaning. Like an, Another great example of this is, I can't even, I don't even know the lyrics, but the... Pretty little thing, let me light your candle, cause mama, I'm sure I uh, don't know, mess around, you know? I don't know, here we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like that's something where it's like, there are words there, but yeah. they exist more for the sound of the words and the acoustic value of that rhythm than, than for any other reason. The thing that immediately comes to mind when you mention that the artist that comes to mind is Rob Zombie. And it's not just because I'm obsessed with Rob Zombie, that's part of it. But I think uh, one thing that I, he does really well in a lot of his stuff, especially sort of his middle period things in his solo career. Uh, yeah, Rob Zombie has periods in his career. Look it up. <laughs> he didn't just write Dragula, people. Uh, but he, he does this thing where he, like each individual line is its own story, right? And I think part of why he does that, or but part of the, my interpretation of that is that he, he is singing with a pretty, pretty gritty, gravelly tone, and it's really easy to miss words and so if he does it like that then anytime you hear a line you can sort of grab onto it and contextualize it because you don't need the entire thing to understand it but like for instance iron head which is one of my favorite songs is uh i forget which of the ver one of the verses says what is my name a demonoid phenomenon regulate the flux and reflux so get it on give it to the world appear another demigod give it to me yeah yeah none of that means anything but it sounds awesome right yeah like and so like these these words, it's just full of cool sounding words that have this this punch to them. System of a Down are another act that do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And just you have you have these like these you hear it and like that that line sounds cool. That line sounds cool. And it has this impact. Again, sort of that the semantic meaning of like this is a really cool thing. But and if you can sort of in some songs like Living Dead Girl, for instance, I think if you can pick up enough pieces, you can start to put together a total idea of what's happening. Whereas other songs like Dragula, Dragula is not about anything. Like it, yeah. it, the name, the name is about the car from the Munsters and that's cool. But like so many of the lyrics are just wildly incoherent and have nothing to do with that. Do you know Vicinity of Obscenity by System of a Down? I do not, no. I, I, I think I've, I've probably heard it. I just, yeah. You probably have heard it. That's the one where the lyrics go. I don't know it by name. Banana, 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 terracotta, banana, terracotta, terracotta pie. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's neat too because I think we're getting it, we're running long here. But one other thing 
that that I want to get to with lyrics and Rob Zombie is a great kind of transition into this is I think a lot of the time people look at songs and assume songs as a whole have one specific meaning and all the lyrics go towards the same thing, which a lot of artists are like that. There's also artists like, I mean, System of a Down are a great example where a verse will be one thing, a chorus will be something completely different. The Beatles did this a lot where like Paul McCartney would write half a song, John Lennon would write half a song, they'd smash the song together. The lyrical content would be, I mean, you look at like a day in the life and it's like, yeah. They're both kind of about days in a life, I guess, Um, (laughs) but they're completely different songs that are just kind of smashed together and you can pull cool meanings from that. And I think a day in the life is one where it's, it's really neat because you can find your own meaning in the juxtapositions of that. But lyrics are not one consistent thing. Often a lot of these songwriters will take half a song that's discarded, be like, oh, well, I don't have a good chorus for this song and I don't have a good verse for this song. Let's put them together and they'll be completely unrelated. That's another thing where music is the common thread that pulls those disparate ideas together. So you mentioned the Beatles and it reminded me of one of my favorite examples of this. Uh, And it's which I learned while I was putting together a video on the song Hey Bulldog, which is that like it was first of all, the entire thing was intended as a throwaway. Like it was just Lennon goofing around. Yeah. Uh, But originally the lyrics were Hey Bullfrog. But at some point during the recording process, McCartney just started barking and they were just like, you know what? Let's, let's roll with it. And so they switched it to Hey Bulldog and like it has some really cool lyrics, like some kind of happiness is measured out in miles. Like that's a really great line. But like the song doesn't really have this coherent through line because they didn't care. And there's like, each line may mean something, but taken together as a whole thing, it's a collage of gibberish. And I think and that's I mean, it works. It's a great song. I mean, speaking of each line may have its own meaning, but together it's a collage of gibberish. That's a perfect description of I am the walrus. Yep. <laughs> I, I am the walrus is also one where I just love the way that that kind of music goes a lot in that to create this like aesthetic of psychedelic kind of revolution in a verse like I don't know like corporation t-shirts stupid bloody Tuesday man you've been a naughty girl you let your knickers down or man you've been a naughty boy you let your face grow long I forget which one goes at the end of that but like it's it's something where it's like it doesn't really matter they're interchangeable (laughs) that's sort of the point exactly but it has this vibe of something that's really revolutionary because of the music and yeah. as a result, people have tried to read so much into that into that song. And that is not a bad thing. Pull whatever meaning you want to from I Am The Walrus. That's awesome. But it's also just gibberish, which is really cool, too. Yeah. It's like a it's like a musical Rorschach test where you, you can look at I Am The Walrus and walk away with basically any message you want. And that message was probably in there. Like, that's not yeah. to say that like you, you're walking away with something that didn't exist. It may not have been put there intentionally. It almost certainly wasn't. But like you can you can listen to that. Like we, we've talked about before, I think I mentioned like to transition wildly to a completely different artist. Uh, but Jackson Brown's song for Adam. Yes. Like is a song that I associate with my grandfather and Alzheimer's. He had Alzheimer's. That Those aren't two unrelated things. Uh, but I, I associate with that in a way that doesn't really have anything to do with the lyrics. And again, like I think it's, What's really fascinating to me is elsewhere on the album, on on that same album is Something Fine, which is much more clearly about Alzheimer's or at least dementia. And like, but that's not the one that I associate with him. And so that's 
pretty clear to me that Jackson Brown didn't write those lyrics with that in mind, but I can still sort of hear that and be like, okay, that's what I feel when I listen to that song. That's who I think of. Yeah. And again, we I think we've argued before that lyrical meaning and musical meaning in general doesn't have to be intentional. I think that this is oh, absolutely a, again a recurring theme uh the postmodern notes. But um <laughs> like we could I we, we could go on all day listening examples, but I think that that's sort of a good maybe a good place to end is this yeah. idea that lyrics mean what you want them to mean music means what you want them to mean and you can sort of interpret them in the context of each other yeah and that sort of you can't necessarily just separate them in either way you can't just look at the lyrics without the music or the music without the lyrics and get a full picture of what listening to the song is like absolutely i think that's a great place to end because i think music is just so unique in this sense especially like pop Western pop music, which means like rock yeah. for those of you who don't know. All it includes, right? It doesn't just mean rock, but yeah, like Western pop yeah. art music is generally yeah. like popular music. Yeah. I think it's neat because I think the study of Western pop art music, what what we do is fundamentally interdisciplinary because of how yeah. these things tie into each other. And this isn't even without talking about how history and other art movements like visual art and theater and stuff like that play into music as well. I think that's something that's really cool about music is it is especially pop art music, whatever you want to call it. It, it is a fundamentally interdisciplinary study. And that's really cool. And and we should remember that. Yeah. And this reminds me, sorry, we're, we're not going to end quite yet because I just remembered a thing a long time ago, like... um a couple music theory YouTubers were doing like an occasional live stream thing called Musica Analytica. And at one point we were talking about sort of someone asked in the chat whether rock was the new jazz. We don't have to debate that right now, but sort of what came up from that was a question of like, well, what does rock study bring to like music theory and music studies in the way that like, you know, jazz study brought improvisation in a way that classical music didn't and it brought like other things as well and one of the things that i think is really integral to understanding the rock music experience is performance i think that it's much harder to separate the concept of stage presence from a rock performance yeah. or from a pop performance than it is from say not that jazz performers don't have stage presence right i'm not not trying to imply that and it's not like you know if you go back to classical it's like opera or whatever but that sort of energy that you get from a live rock performance is so integral to the experience of understanding rock even if you're just listening to an album i think a lot of times you're picturing it on a stage not necessarily consciously but you have that experience of like seeing someone while you listen and that's again to sort of get back to the like interdisciplinary thing is like rock music studies needs to incorporate and to the best of my knowledge largely hasn't there may be some papers out there that look at it i i'd love to see them if you're aware of any please send them to me but um for the most part we are still talking about rock's harmonic vocabulary and melodic vocabulary and its structures and stuff like that that we could that fit into those classical and sometimes jazz paradigms. I think, again, there's there's so many interconnected parts to the musical experience that really, in order to do any musical analysis seriously, and not, not to get all cute on it, but like, there's a reason that the like, tagline for this podcast is looking at music from inside and out, right? Yeah. Like you need multiple perspectives to really, really understand the musical experience. Absolutely. I think that's something we should put on the list for things to talk to and talk about another day, because I'd love to chat with you about performance. And yeah. I have so many thoughts on that. But we'll save that for another day. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. Where where can people find you, Corey? Uh, so you can find me on YouTube.com slash 12 Tone Videos to watch my work. And you can find me 
posting pointless nonsense on Twitter at twitter.com slash 12 tone videos. Cool. Yeah. And if you want to find me, actually, I have a second channel now where I'm going to be posting. I've been doing a lot of live streams. I'm going to be posting highlights uh, from my live streams. And I want to get I want to get uh, subscribers on my second channel so you guys can watch this stuff. If you're interested in me goofing off live, I'm sure I'll have Corey on one of my very important music chart live streams someday. <laughs> Subscribe to Polyphonic Live and also just Polyphonic on YouTube. Follow me on Twitter. Support Nebula. If you're not listening to this on Nebula already, you could have been listening to this a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. I should also plug, I've been meaning to start streaming stuff on Twitch. Some some game stuff, some like I've been meaning to do like editing live streams and stuff like that. I don't know if I will have done that by the time this podcast goes live, but just in case, I think it's twitch.tv slash 12 tone videos. We'll see if, get, look that up, see if it's a real thing i don't know we'll see awesome i'm looking forward to watching some of your live streams all of music youtube's getting into the live stream game <laughs> uh yeah thank you guys so much um for listening and and as always I, I i don't know i say as always i'm not sure if we've actually mentioned this or not but if you have a topic um that you'd like to hear us take on tweet to ghost notes show or tweet at either of us on our twitters too yeah, yeah we'd love to, we'd love to hear what kind of topics y'all want us to uh to talk about. Thanks for listening. Take care.